From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. But we had an organization that was really getting hit with one of the early surges. So out on the East Coast, our friends there were being hit early. And what this leader had to do was make a decision about whether or not to change some of the facilities to include more ICU beds. And that would mean that they would have to take down the functionality in other departments to make space for that. And so that is a difficult, difficult decision to make. You have to be able to figure out, are these pros gonna outweigh these cons when you don't really know if the pros are ever gonna materialize. That's Amy Greeter talking about making difficult decisions in crisis situations. We'll hear more from Amy on medical practices and how they're developing key strategies during difficult times. But first, a word from our sponsors. Innovative therapies are bringing new possibilities and hope for populations with rare neuromuscular disease. However, these important advances come with cost and administrative challenges. Read a new white paper from Sarepta Therapeutics at mgma.com slash Sarepta. This white paper outlines actionable ways organizations can build a business case to gain buy-in for cutting-edge care. Again, to view the paper, visit mgma.com slash Sarepta. The COVID-19 pandemic has ushered in dramatic changes for physician practices. During this unprecedented time, many practices are considering what operational changes they need to implement to navigate periods of fluctuating patient volume. Access a thought leadership discussion with R1, RCM, and three physician group leaders. To attend this free educational program, visit r1rcm.com mgma. Leadership in times of crisis is very different than during normal day-to-day operations. Today, we're joined by Amy Greeter, Senior Vice President with the Coker Group. Amy's here to talk about key strategies to managing complex and stressful situations and how to pick up the pieces in a way that guarantees future stability and success moving forward. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure to be with you, Daniel. Thank you. Now, you're a senior vice president at Coker Group. You're working with hospitals, medical practices, helping them with strategic initiatives. I'm just curious, how has the pandemic, how has all that's gone on in 2020 changed your focus or, or has it? Well, I think everything's changing these days. So if you're not changing, you're falling behind. Uh, I have a quote that I like, and it says, if you don't like the direction of the wind, adjust your sails. 
And so I always think about that. I grew up in Wisconsin. And so, you know, it's very common to have some sort of a lake situation that you go out onto when you're in Wisconsin. So I learned how to sail on a tiny little sunfish sailboat, which is the littlest tiny dinghy you can possibly imagine. And I remember having that conversation, you know, growing up, it's like, well, if you don't like where you're heading, adjust your sails. And so I learned that then, and I see it practically playing out now where if you don't like what's happening right now, or if you're struggling in the midst of this pandemic or otherwise, you've got to do something to change it. And so mm-hmm. I see a lot of organizations right now having to adjust their sales, just mm-hmm. figuring out where do I need to be going to make sure that I'm successful, that I'm doing the right thing for my practice, that I'm taking care of patients in the best way, that I've got my employees empowered and educated to be as successful as they can be. So I think change is the name of the game these mm-hmm. days. I know that one thing you were telling me offline was that uh, you're one of those people that's a road warrior under normal conditions. You're traveling, as you mentioned, at least once a week normally. Um, How has that part of it changed for you? How have you adjusted to it? Good question. The things that I don't miss are not having dinner with my family every night and sleeping in a strange hotel room. (laughs) But the things that I really miss are being with my clients. I mean, that is hands down the absolute best part about my job is just being with the people that I am trying to help. And I really do miss that. I think it's, it's, obviously possible to do this with technology, but I think there's something to be said by sitting down in a room, whether it's over a meal or just over a bunch of binders in a conference room and saying, okay, we're going to work this out. Like, let's figure out what solutions we need to have and doing that together and not letting people out until you figure out the problem or you uh, have a solution set. And so I do really miss that time with my clients. I understand it's for the best. I firmly believe in wearing a mask and keeping six feet apart, but I do miss that part about it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's 2020 has created some unique challenges, just like you said about, do I travel? Do I not travel? If I do travel, then taking those precautions, distancing, mask, all of those things that are going on. You talked about crisis, crisis management at the recent um, Medical Practice Excellence Conference. Um, I love your title. Let me see if I get this right. A steady captain in a stormy sea, eight effective ways to lead in crisis. Um, I, I love books. I love catchy titles. I love writing, you know, so that one caught my attention. Where did that title come from? Um, What kind of sparked that creativity in putting that together? Well, I don't know that I'm necessarily a sailor. It's been a long time since I would say I'm a robust sailor. But as I said before, you know, I learned how to sail early on and certainly appreciate that to this day. So I think part of it just came from having that experience. And I will tell you, part of it was very odd to me, you know, to speak at really esteemed conferences like MGMA, you have to submit your topic months and months in advance. And so when I submitted it, you know, in late 2019, there is no way I could have known 
how timely this topic would actually be in October of 2020. So it gives me a little bit of goosebumps. It also makes me think maybe I should buy a lottery ticket. Maybe there is some <laughs> something I have, uh, some special force. But really this topic came out of a passion of mine about physician resilience and physician leadership and physician burnout, which then you know, transformed into overall human resilience, human leadership. And so it became very interesting to me to just examine leadership in times of crisis. Does that bring out the best of us? Does that bring out the worst of us? And when we're facing it, how do we deal with that effectively? What do we really need to do? I think there are so many times where people serve as informal type leaders, and yet they're really tapped on the shoulder during crisis to say, okay, step up, we need you. And so practically, how do we arm people like that, people who may be new to leadership or seasoned leaders that haven't had to deal with something like this in a while with some practical skills? What do I need to do to you know, keep the lights on around here kind of things? So I appreciate your interest in it and certainly have had a lot of fun talking about it. Yeah, um, that's, there's the interesting question then. So, you know, there's the basic question, are leaders born, are they, you know, trained? Um, but let's take it even a step further than crisis management leaders, you know, leaders who can succeed in that crisis. Does it become even more instinctual at that point or is you know, being inherent, or is there certain training uh, that people can get to be better crisis managers, for lack of a better term? That's a great question. It's a, a nature versus nurture yeah. debate. We could probably spend all day on that. <laughs> I think that there are certain attributes of people that make them better coped, you know, better coping skills in times of crisis. So if you take a Enneagram or you take a Myers-Briggs or take any of those, you kind of know who you are. I think people that have that ability to stay calm in the, in the element of crisis are those that tend to fare better. And so if you can really keep yourself calm, I think you can do wonders in keeping your organization calm. And that's not something that everybody's born with. You know, I don't know if you ask probably 20 people about me, probably 10 would say, mm, she can be calm. And Probably 10 others would say, you know, she can be kind of a wild card. <laughs> and so, so, you know, do you have it or don't? Maybe you have it when you need to. Um, but I think that there are some things about people that just make them inherently successful in times of crisis. And I think that ability to stay calm is really one of them. Yeah. Um, when I, I want to go back to your title again, because one of the things that um, I've been doing and, I, and a lot of other people that I've been talking to, because we've, you know, we're, we're not out there as much as we were. Like you said, you're not the road warrior. You were um, at MGMA. We have all been working from home. So I'm saving an hour, hour and a half, two hours a day on commuting time. Gives me time to do other things. One of those things is reading. Um, and I think in a particular crisis situation like this, like we've been dealing with, we do become more thoughtful, reflective. We start thinking about why, you know, why. And uh, one of the things I've been doing is reading a lot of books, a lot of the old classics. One of those books was Moby Dick, um, you know. Uh, 
I, I just finished it a couple of months ago, but it sort of, it still resonates with me when you're talking about being able to manage and stay calm in crisis situations. I don't always think of Captain Ahab. <laughs> he was a <laughs> bit of a wild card himself. But the, the cool thing, I mean, it's, it's truly one of those books. I don't know that I'd hand it out in a management class, but I, you could hand out sections from it because there's Ahab and then there are his uh, right-hand men, so to speak, uh, Stubb and Starbuck. Uh, and they all have different prototypes of leadership skills. And I'm, I, I'm wondering from you, what you've been doing during this time, you know, as far as brain work, as far as either reading books or reading certain papers that are helping sharpen your leadership skills. Mm -hmm. So I am probably going for a classic here, but not in the classic sense that uh, Moby Dick is. So I have a very well-thumbed through dog-eared copy of a book called Diagnosing and Changing Organizational Culture. And so this is something that you probably read in your MBA program. I know you have your MBA, Daniel. That's right. Yep. Classic, yep. you know, core curriculum in a standard MBA program. But this book is fantastic. So it's written by Kim Cameron and Robert Quinn, who are professors at the University of Michigan. And this takes a lot because I went to the rival university, Michigan State University. So if I'm giving props to two professors from the University of Michigan, you know that this is good. Right. <laughs> but they've got several editions out now. The first they drafted in 1999. And what this book, this Diagnosing and Changing Organizational Culture is about, is about figuring out what do you have going on in your organization right now and making it feel very concrete and then figure out where's the preferred culture going forward. And so I do a lot of strategic planning retreats with people. And when we talk about changing culture, you can almost start to see either the fear in people's faces or the quick glazing of the eyes, like either that is scary to me or that's something I just do not care about. But when you put it in a framework, like the competing values framework, which is what this book is based off of, it makes it feel very quantitative. And so I have found really good success by having people understand that there is literally a score that you can assign across these four key categories of culture, as Cameron and Quinn define it. And then you can literally score where do you need to go and what's the difference, what's the variance between where you want to be and where you are right now. So I have read it, this is probably the 10th time wow. I've read the book, um, but I find value in it every time. So as you asked, my brain work has really been trying to figure out how do we adapt the four categories of cultures that they talk about in their book to a post-COVID world. What does that look like in our new reality? I mean, is that going to be different? Are there going to be variants on these categories of cultures or a new subset of culture altogether that's going to be here? And I don't, I don't know that I'm as, as smart as those two PhDs, uh, but I certainly have been thinking a lot about it. Right. So if you have it at hand, what are those four categories of culture? I don't want to put you on the spot there, but I'm, I'm curious what those are, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know a little bit more about what those are as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the four types are called clan culture, adhocracy, hierarchy, and market. 
And so there are you know, some hallmarks of each of those, but really their postulate is that every culture falls into one or more of these, and it's really, where do you peak? You know, you can have attributes of all of them, but what's sort of the North Star across all four of them? And often what you'll find is when you talk about, okay, well, your scores put you here, people will say, oh, I see all these other minor attributes, but when you really get down to it, you're right. We are a clan culture, mm-hmm. you know, or things like that. So right. it's very so, good. Yeah, so with when we think about healthcare, when mm-hmm. we think about medical practices, because of the way um, those organizations are shaped, uh, do they fall into a particular culture or what is shaping the culture, you know, that's out any outside forces as well? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say there's no one culture that would fit every healthcare organization, right? We're all too varied. MGMA is different than Coker is different than, you know, any of the delivery systems. Mm-hmm. But it is often that you will see healthcare systems, medical practices fall into the hierarchy culture, just as a, as a reflection of sort of, you know, there's a physician, there's a nurse, there's a front desk worker, you know, maybe at the top or the bottom, depending upon your own organization, there's a patient. And so you, you tend to see a lot of healthcare entities fall into that hierarchy brand. And that's not good or bad. You know, there's pros and cons to all four categories. It's just kind of the trend that has emerged over the years. Okay. Okay. Now let's talk about healthcare leaders specifically. You work with them. You're, you're not able to see them face to face as much as you used to, but you are, I'm sure, communicating with them through Zoom or whatever other channels you've got there. Um, you're helping them with their strategic, strategic initiatives and other aspects of their business that they're working on. What are some of the common themes you're hearing then, what are some of those pain points that when you're going from practice to practice or organization to organization that you're hearing time and again? Yeah, I would say the list is long, unfortunately. (laughs) You know, so many organizations are struggling with so many things right now. And it could be a lack of patient confidence. It could be struggling with consistent staffing. It could be having to make difficult decisions financially. It could be a struggle with burnout. I mean, there is just a lot of issues that we see. I think in my mind, one of the things that is overarching across all of our practices is the fact that they struggle with this loss of control. Okay. And so there's this feeling that there are so many things that are happening to us as opposed to us controlling And that creates a lot of instability, a lot of questions. I have a particular uh, professor of psychology that I really like. And I don't know if you can have a favorite professor of psychology, but but if you can, I have one. Um, her Her name is Ellen Langer. And she's particularly cool to me because she was the first female tenured professor of psychology at Harvard, which of course has some gestalt around it. Mm -hmm. Dr. Langer's work really is in decision-making and the illusion of control. Hmm. 
And if you'll oblige me, I'll tell you, she has a very cool study uh, that she did as one of her early research works. And in it, she uses patients in a nursing home as her test subjects. And she breaks the group into half. She gives half of them a potted plant that she says is their responsibility to keep alive. And the people in that group have the ability to make decisions about their daily schedule. Hmm. When do they want to eat? Where do they want to eat? When do they want to have visitors, etc. The other half of the group gets a potted plant, but is told that the staff is going to be responsible for the potted plant. So you don't have to worry about it. You know, it can just live in your room and you can enjoy it, but you don't have to take care of it at all. And they get a very prescriptive schedule about what their day is going to look like. And what happens is that 18 months later, twice as many of the residents are alive in the group that had to take care of their potted plants than those in the control group. That's sort of a grim research study. But what Ellen Langer's work goes on to study is, is it this sense of control, even within the confines of a nursing home where, you know, your control is inherently limited, but having some control about your daily schedule and this feeling of responsibility, even for a potted plant, that really leads people to have better outcomes. And so there's been a lot of subsequent work that's been done on that. But I think it's illustrative to what we're seeing now, which is we need to have either real or the illusion of control. And so many groups aren't getting that. And so they're really struggling because that doesn't exist for them right now. Hmm. That is such an interesting story. And I am going to go get a plan after this meeting. <laughs> One that you take care of, please. We need you around, Daniel, for a while yet. <laughs> wow, I love that story, though. So um, I want to take it in a direction here. So in correspondence, you mentioned that leaders play, truly play a key role in times of crisis. We touched on that a little bit earlier. When you think about it, you think, obviously, oh, the leader is the person. Yeah, they're going to help us through this time of crisis. But let's kind of get behind that. Let's dig a little bit deeper and figure out some of the reasons why that is and mm -hmm. how they can, I don't know, change the mindset or change the um, success rate of those who are working for them. What, why is that the way it is? I think it's so easy to say, I'm a medical practice leader, or I'm a physician leader, or I'm a hospital leader. But the reality is that that's that's what you do, that's not who you are. So going back to our nature versus nurture uh, discussion, there are very real types of leaders. And it feels like, you know, every behavioral psychologist and every consulting firm and everybody has their own uh, set of descriptors for the types of leaders. But you can have a command and control leader. You can have someone who's very directive, you know, in setting things. You can have a, a cognitive or a technical leader that's really good at what they do. You know, they're really good at their subject matter expertise. And then you can have this adaptive or transformational leader. And I think as we're looking at times of crisis, it's really that adaptive or transformational leader that you're going to want at the helm. 
and that's really going to bring about the most success for your organization. And those people are so influential, whether they're calm or a little bit of a wild card right, <laughs> behavior right. aside, they're so good because in times of crisis, you have to be ever evolutionary. You have to be changing. And you may not always know if what you're doing is right or it's not right, but you've got to keep moving forward and making the best decisions that you have based on the information you know, that you have at that time. So I think it's really, really important that you have a leader who can be adaptive or transformational. I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely imperative in times of crisis. Mm -hmm. From a, a healthcare setting, do you have an example, a, a case study or an anecdote you could walk us through where you've seen a transformational leader uh, be able to, you know, really help that team, help that organization kind of weather a crisis situation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's always hard to think about times of crisis as positive moments. Um, but we know the quote, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so, you know, in times like this, I, I have a good one that comes to mind of, of making sure it doesn't go to waste. So this happens to be a COVID one. It's just relevant and top of mind. But we had an organization that was really getting hit with one of the early surges. So out on the East Coast, our friends there were being hit early. And what this leader had to do was make a decision about whether or not to change some of the facilities to include more ICU beds. And that would mean that they would have to take down the functionality in other departments to make space for that. And so that is a difficult, difficult decision to make. You have to be able to figure out, are these pros going to outweigh these cons when you don't really know if the pros are ever going to materialize? You know, you don't know that you're going to have a need for those beds. The suspect is, yes, you're going to, but you don't really know that. And so it takes a lot to stand up in front of your physician partners and your board and all of your stakeholders and say, I need to take a gamble and I want you to support me on it. And I don't know if this is going to pay off, but we're going to make a big decision here. And we're going to make sure that we have more ICU beds, more capacity than we've ever had before. And so, you know, that in that case, especially on the East Coast, where we were so hard hit, you know, within the states early on, ended up being a great decision. But it, it is one that is difficult and you don't ever know if you're making the right decision. I think, you know, sometimes it's like, do you like the peanut M&M or the regular M&M? Well, it's an M&M, right? There's no bad choice in that situation. But when you're right. looking at investing millions of dollars and taking down, you know, some core functions, are I going to make the right call? So just one example. Yeah. And you made a really good point that there are some bold decisions that have to be made at times. You don't know if that decision, how it's going to play out, if it's going to sink or swim the organization, what can you do ahead of time? So let's say just do some crisis, strategic crisis planning, you know, to let's, Let's game plan some different things that could happen down the road. So you, you're still having to kind of swing for the fences, so to speak. You're going to have to take some big risk there, but at least you've planned it out. So what are some ways then that the organization can um, build out these strategic plans, plan for, I hate to say it, but plan for the worst. You know, you, you just want to be ready in case something bad catastrophic happens. 
Well, I think you're actually very wise by saying, what can we do to prepare? Because 80% of what you need to do in a crisis, you can have some fundamental plans for. So I'm gonna give you two very, very practical things. The first would be make sure that you have a crisis response team formed that you've met prior to crisis and that people understand what are they supposed to be bringing to the table. So we always talk about the fact that in a crisis response team, you need a, excuse me, an individual who's representing the physician's interests and the nursing function and the human resource function and your you know, PR, external relations, communications functions. Get those people together, sit them down and say, you are an expert in this area and we want you to bring that expertise to bear when we have the need for it. And get them comfortable working with each other do all the little technical things like having an email listserv set up for those people. I mean, just little things, but very practically get that team formed so they know that they're going to be tapped on the shoulder when it's time. And we're going to expect them to kind of swing for the fences, like you said, mm -hmm. pretty readily. And then the second thing, and this is, again, very practical, is figure out who is going to need communication during a time of crisis and assign accountability for who's going to communicate to those people or those groups of people or those departments or that organization, whatever the case may be, literally have, you know, satellite location X and then Susie Smith next to it and, and understand or let Susie know that she is going to be responsible for satellite location X. When the crisis comes up, they are her new baby. She's going to be responsible for communicating to them. And if you literally write it down and then have accountability built into that, it will make your communication go so much better right at the time when you need it the most. Mm -hmm. So get that team ready and make sure that you've got a communication plan with some accountability built into it. Mm -hmm. So you and I were talking earlier that you're in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and clearly, you know, along the Eastern coast there, you're, you know, hurricanes are one example of, you know, some crisis planning, some crisis management. That's just one example outside of what we've all been going through with COVID. Um, I'm just wondering when you do plan for some crisis situations like this, how do you then measure it? How do you know that um, what you have in place is right? Are there certain KPIs or there certain measurements that you're looking at to say we are to we're steering this ship in the right direction here? Mm -hmm. So great question. I guess if your um, building hasn't flooded to the brim, that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> yes. From hurricanes that may be following you, that's a good sign. You're doing you're doing something mm -hmm. right. But I think you have to really consider a couple of categories, and your KPI okay. should be based on those functional areas. So, for example, are your employees safe. I mean, something as rudimentary as that. Not are they satisfied or are they engaged, but are they safe? Do your patients have ongoing access to the physician resources that they need? Again, not are we able to give 24-7 access, but do they literally have access to the physicians when they need them the most? Starting at the very basic level, I think is important in measuring how you are doing. I always tell people that they need to start small, they need to fail fast, 
And if you've heard uh, Dr. Fisher Wright speak, she'll tell you to, to fail cheaply if okay. possible. <laughs> you know, to do it quick and do it cheap if you can. Yep. But, but I think I think that's something that you have to think about too is are we taking the appropriate amount of initiative in this crisis? So have we even started to take small steps to rectify whatever is in front of us? Because if you're not looking at taking small steps, you're certainly not taking big steps, you're not moving in the right direction. So even just a little check mark of, are we taking some direction and marching towards it? Even if it's not the right one, you know, when we find that out later, at least we're going somewhere. Mm -hmm. I want to end uh, by veering just a little bit. Um, last week, I had the opportunity to hear you talk, and you you shared some really interesting thoughts. Um, the way I perceived them were uh, really got into the work-life balance side of things, the mental health, taking care of yourself, because we've been talking about crisis. We've been talking about leadership, but uh, a part of that is as we all know, we've seen the statistics on, um, you know, virtual visits with therapists and, and on down the road, just a lot of really horrifying uh, statistics related to suicide and other things. So we have to take care of ourselves. One of the interesting things you conveyed last week was uh, prior to uh, COVID hitting, you were, I, I believe if you weren't pulling our legs, you were going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, I believe. Is that correct? You were going to do that. And um, COVID got in the way, so you couldn't travel and do that. But one interesting thing you mentioned was you are um, sticking with a program. I think you said you're wearing weighted vest. And I don't know if you're wandering around the neighborhood waving to people or what, where you're doing this weighted vest work. But to me that you're really, what it, tells me is you're continuing to you know plan for your your own well-being your own uh self-care to make sure that you're healthy and that you're enjoying life you're not letting uh covid get in the way of you still out there you know climbing mountains so to speak so tell us a little bit about your philosophy i know the old saying is why did you uh, climb the mountain? Because it was there. But I mean, let's go beyond that. That's right. Personally, what does climbing a mountain mean to you? What does it tell you about yourself? Well, I'll first say it's very, very easy to say that you were going to climb the highest freestanding mountain in Africa when you haven't done it, right? Oh, I'm <laughs> definitely going to do that. <laughs> Um, but I will attest, I really was going to do that. Uh, and of course, this opportunity hasn't presented itself yet. But part of it was, I am coming up to a big milestone birthday. Okay. It's not 30 and it's not 50. So I'll let you figure out <laughs> I'll do the math, that, yes. what that milestone is going to be. And so I really wanted to prove to myself that I could still do really difficult things. I think that having that mental fortitude to climb Mount Kilimanjaro was just something that I wanted to do to prove to myself I could do it. And so I had run a number of full marathons and, you know, zillions of half marathons. And so I needed a new challenge, you know, kind of up in the ante. So mm -hmm. I thought, I'm going to do this. And I will tell you as a happy byproduct of my <laughs> walking around the neighborhood, you know, in the evenings with my AirPods on, probably looking like a, a crazy person with a backpack full of hand weights in it, um, <laughs> has been the unanticipated outcome of just 
having an opportunity to clear my head and just have some time to listen to a favorite podcast or to listen to an audible book or to just breathe, you know, listen to, you know, one of the apps, the, the calm app that just gets you centered. And that has been an amazing and wonderful consolation prize for me, despite the fact that I haven't summited it yet, but, but will hopefully in 2021. Yeah. Well, that is wonderful advice. And thank you for sharing that, Amy. And, uh, Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This was a real treat. So thank you, Daniel. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Amy Greeter. And thanks to Sarepta and to R1 RCM for sponsoring this week's show. Read a new white paper from Sarepta Therapeutics at mgma.com slash Sarepta and access a thought leadership discussion with R1, RCM, and three physician group leaders to hear key learnings on sustaining positive practice performance. To attend this free educational program, please visit r1rcm.com slash mgma. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com or find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. MGMA Insights is presented by Declan McGee, Rob Ketchum, and I'm Daniel Williams. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.